<laughs> a collective sigh. Let's do, let's do a collective sigh together. Thank you. And welcome. Welcome. That feel good? We're gathering once again as a community seeking to be diverse and inclusive as we inspire love, work for justice, and grow in community. Whoever you are, welcome. Wherever you've come from this morning to be with us, welcome. And whomever you love and makes life more fulfilling, welcome. I hope this is a place where you are able to each be your fullest and most authentic selves. I'd like to let you know that on Saturday, March the 21st, is our 10th annual You, You've Got Talent show. So every year, all the talent comes out of the woodwork, and uh, we do have a few spots available, so if you have a talent you'd like to display on this night, we'd love to have you. But please spread the word. There will be a few of these back there. You can put one on your fridge. And uh, hope, please support this, the UU Church of Kent music program by coming to the UU've Got Talent. Thanks. Okay. So I also would like to share that our generosity team is grateful and inspired by your generosity. Last week, we had a start of 34 pledges made with a total of $91,330. And many people increase their pledges. Thank you. The campaign continues next Sunday. As you turn in your pledge, we'll add your name to the flame there on the back wall that illuminates our love, hope, and generosity. It's already shining pretty brightly. If you haven't pledged before, we invite you to consider doing so. You don't have to be a member of the congregation to pledge. And every gift of support for our operating budget helps us sustain what we do together. Here is where we hear a message of love and hope. We grow spiritually and discover ways we can live a life of meaning. Please make your pledge today and thank you for your generosity. And given the health situation, we have one more announcement here. Come wash your hands with me. Come wash your hands with me. Come wash your hands with me, that we might know peace of mind. And we'll bring you Perel, when Perel is hard to find. And we'll sing this song a lot, as we protect humankind. Thank you, Al. <laughs> Al, Colleen and Sandy, would you come share some words with us about how UUCK inspires you to shine and helps us shine together? Good morning, all. Everybody, uh, I was asked to talk a little bit about what the church means to me. So, what my UU church family means to me? Well, it began about 20 years ago. I was at the time a member of the Akron UU Church. I enjoyed the church and I liked the people and all that, but it was still all the way up in Fairlawn and I just lived here in Kent. So another friend was coming to our church and she suggested that I come here and try it out. So I came and checked it out. And she told me to dress casual, so I did. Little did I know that the 24 people that were here would look more casual than I was. There was peasant skirts, Birkenstocks, and tie-dye, just kind of like summer here, you know? 
But right away, I knew that everybody was sincere and really welcoming. I was shown hospitality by a guy that was wearing khakis and a barn shirt and a bush hat. And I think we all know who he is. Ed Stolish poured two cups of coffee from a stainless steel urn downstairs. And he handed one to me. He didn't even know who I was. He handed me a cup of coffee. And I just thought, that was so cool. And then we talked, and we became friends, and things just went from there. Um, <clears throat> so from then on, I thought I was home. It wasn't long after that where another couple asked if I liked to camp. And we all know that that's Leeson's. <laughs> and I soon became a member of our Walden group, along with a few other dedicated folks, including the late Dr. Gordon Vars. We had a lot of fun on that uh, committee. We had a lot of memorable camping experiences. I was fortunate to be a part of a great program called Hogwarts. My neighbor, Becky Haynes, put it together along with some other talented individuals. I served with them for eight years, uh, teaching, cooking, all kinds of stuff. Had a lot of fun. I watched my daughters flourish. Um, my wife Sandy and I make new friends. That's for sure. I've seen our membership grow through the years, especially with the political climate. I've seen the change from just building better restroom facilities. Believe me, one toilet and a shower curtain was roughing it. <laughs> This church has a lot to offer folks, a lot of programs, and a lot of activities. But with all good things comes with bad. We're rapidly outgrowing our available space. We all know that. So please, please think about our need to grow. And you'll be glad that we did. Well, originally my daughter was supposed to be doing this, so I wrote this up in the last like five minutes. So, <laughs> However, you can tell it comes from the heart. Um, this church really provides a lot of opportunities for people to develop a community. I think that's something that's super important here. We might have different ideas about things, but we can all come together and be a community and, and grow together. Uh, people can participate in a number of activities. We have things that people can participate in as a participant, or they can come and do working. I've managed to be on just about every committee here, but so far have managed to avoid the board. We'll see. <laughs> Time is coming. <laughs> um, we have activities ranging from all sorts of things. We have groups for families, retirees, campers, readers, social activists. We build communities within and also in the greater world. And of course, we have the opportunity to develop young witches and wizards through the Hogwarts program. And none of this would be possible without the financial support of people in this church. We have to know where the money's coming from. That's why pledging is so important. If you pledge, just like at home, you have a budget. If there's a pledge, people know how much money's coming in, and then you can figure out where the money's going to go. So it makes it a lot easier for folks. So if you haven't turned in your pledge card yet, please consider doing so this week. Oh, below me I feel no motion Standing on these mountains and plains Far away from the rolling ocean, still my dry land heart can say, I've been sailing all my life now, never harbor no port have I known. Wide universe is the ocean I travel.
drifting here with my ship's companions. All we pilgrim and pilgrim souls making our way by the lights of the heavens in our beautiful blue boat home. I give thanks to the waves of free-range child, even when I was quite young. I loved the wild places that called to my imagination. In our yard, I discovered a hollow inside a juniper bush to use as my child cave for games of make-believe. Until the end of kindergarten, we lived in a neighborhood that had a swampy pond behind the houses. We would make mud pies and scoop out jars of water with tadpoles so we could watch them grow into frogs. In first grade, we moved to a neighborhood with an undeveloped field on the block and a whole block-sized field a few blocks away. We would explore, catch grasshoppers, and pick wildflowers to take home to our mothers. My family didn't have a lot of disposable income, so our vacations were always camping trips, often to state parks or county parks, where you could put a few dollars into an envelope and tuck it into a lockbox by the entrance. We kids had the run of the woods. We explored and played for hours, catching toads and salamanders and building forts out of the fallen branches. I also learned that nature could provide nourishment if you knew how to forage. I went with my dad when he hunted for morels and chanterelles. He taught us how to fish for walleye and to wade in the river to catch crayfish, and then how to prepare and cook these delicacies. Our backyard garden included edible perennial plants that could also be found in the wild. Jerusalem artichokes, raspberries and sorrel, a very lemony green that makes a delicious soup. I recently learned that the first peoples on this continent showed early settlers how to forage for Jerusalem artichokes in the early spring to help bridge the time when the winter stores were gone, but the new crops were not quite ready. In grade school, we spent a week at a camp where we learned more foraging skills. Fast forward a few decades. For our 36-hour honeymoon, my husband Randy and I went to Oil Creek State Park in Pennsylvania. I love going to that particular park because it is a living testament to how the land can recover from horrific devastation from human greed. Where once oil derricks, 
mud and worse, once defiled the land. There is now a lush forest. As we were hiking in the woods on that fall day, we came upon an old house foundation from the oil boom years. Randy went to walk around it and came back with a couple of apples from a tree that must have been part of the home's kitchen garden. As I tasted the sweetness of this human heirloom that was reclaimed as kin by the recovered forest, I felt a deep sense of interconnection and hope, both with my new beloved and with the resilient land around us. Come, let us worship together. This is the poem in Blackwater Woods by Mary Oliver. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your very life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Our reading is from the book, Recollections of an Old Settler, Stories of Kent and Vicinity in Pioneer Times. Christian Cackler was one of the first white settlers in Portage County. He arrived in 1804 and described the place as an unbroken wilderness filled with wild men and wild animals. He goes on to say in his 1874 memoir, this used to be one of the greatest counties in the world for a great variety of game. There were the elk, deer, bear, wolf, panther, wildcat, otter, beaver, wallynigs, which are wolverines, porcupine, raccoon, and a great variety of small animals. Of the feathered flock, there were swans, geese, ducks, turkeys, bald eagles, gray eagles, ravens, buzzards, crows, owls, and a great variety of small birds that used to make the forest ring with their sweet songs as one happy family of the forest. And where are they now? The white man has thrown death and destruction among them, and they have all disappeared. There was the Indian that was placed in the forest with his happy family of beasts and birds. He was placed in the happiest situation of any human being, for he had everything that the human heart could wish for. Everything was plenty and easily gotten. For there was all sorts of game playing around that was for their use, and all the ponds, rivers, and brooks filled with fish, and all the feathered flocks that used to live here. And there were the great forests filled with bees and honey in great quantities, and all sorts of wild fruits such as whortleberries, blackberries, cranberries, blackhaws, chestnuts, hickory nuts, butternuts, etc. Can a man be placed in a pleasanter situation in this life? Cackler described the Indians as very friendly and peaceable and perfectly honest. If they promised you anything, you might be sure of it. He also described the natives' generosity. If they had anything they could bestow upon you in the way of eatables, it was as free as the water. They thought it was a privilege to give, for they thought it was a token of friendship 
and if they gave to one, they gave to all that were present. This European white man was both curious and puzzled about how the natives treated the wilderness. They were as careful of their game as we are of our cattle. They would kill nothing unless wanted for present use. They did not shoot unless they got close so as to make sure work of it. The God of nature had provided everything the heart could wish for. They made honor and honesty their rule of life, and when they left their camps, they set up sticks as a symbol that nobody was at home and everything was secure. I have often inquired why it is that the man of the forest is so much more honest than the civilized and Christian world. They believe that a man ought to be good and honest, and that a man who will lie, steal, and cheat ought not to live. When they are your friend, they are a friend indeed, but as enemies, they know no mercy. They believe in punishing the wicked for their evil deeds. When he describes how the Indians were eventually driven from the land, Cackler laments, and for what? Merely to gratify and make room for a covetous and craving disposition that can never be satisfied. Like Alexander of old, when he had conquered the whole world, he sat down and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. The first words the cackler uses to describe the land was unbroken wilderness. Let me repeat that phrase, unbroken wilderness. How is it that some cultures perceive nature as other to be broken and dominated while other cultures see themselves in mutual relationship with the elements of the natural world. I have been learning more about indigenous culture since I've been studying permaculture and working closely with the Reverend Sunshine Wolf, your UUA primary contact, who is indigenous. While doing some research for River Day last year at the Kent Free Library, I ran across the memoir that includes our reading. Cackler is describing his encounter with the local Indians, a completely different culture, with a surprising amount of curiosity and a not-so-surprising amount of puzzlement. There were people, a vibrant community, living on this land and enjoying it like a Garden of Eden, without the need for them to sow nor reap, nor toil nor spin, just to take what they needed and to never to take more than what the land could bear. Their relationships with other humans in their community were based in honesty and trust. Leaders earned respect by building consensus and fostering unity. This is because survival as hunter-gatherers depends on honoring relationships. This wampum belt is typical of those created for several early treaties between the Iroquois and European leaders. It symbolizes the indigenous expectation that they and the European newcomers would live side by side, separate but in harmony with nature as they understood it. What must these first peoples have thought the first time a white person lied broke the first agreement or the first treaty? What must they have thought when we clear-cut the forests and massacred the wildlife, as Cackler describes later in his memoir? 
What I'm coming to understand is that our Western culture abandoned our human dimension of needing to be connected to the land somewhere along the line of becoming civilized. From the time we are infants, we get the message that the blanket is safe and the grass beyond is yucky. The woods are a dangerous place. Don't eat any plants you find in a field because they might poison you. Our livelihoods often depend on us relocating so we aren't able to know, let alone commit to, the land. Land development means we clear cut and scrape the topsoil off the land, fill in the wetland or divert the stream in order to have a blank slate on which to build. The fields and ponds of my childhood all suffered this fate. How many of us feel a deep sense of connection to the land beneath our feet? How many of us live on the land that our parents lived on, let alone our grandparents or great-grandparents? Many of us are longing for a deep sense of connection that is tied to a sense of place. Some of us do feel an embodied connection, but if we talk about it, others will think we're weirdos. Tree hugger is an epithet. But I believe that our soul connection to the land is our birthright, traded for a bowl of capitalist porridge. I want to share a couple of concepts that I'm, help, I'm finding helpful. One is solastalgia, the distress we feel when we are disconnected from the land, either from dislocation or in distress to its damage. This is a photo of my friend Ilza and her daughter Astra on their farm in western, a western region of Latvia called Latgalia. Ilza and her husband Oskars had regular jobs in the city of Riga, but she found that she kept getting sick and she felt out of balance. As a child, she had loved visiting her grandfather's farm that was inherited from her great-grandfather. The farm had been sitting fallow since her grandfather's death. She and Oskars decided to quit their jobs, and they and their then four children lived in a tent for a year. And Oskars, who was a carpenter, made the house livable again. Their appreciation of and connection to the land was healing. They were excited to have me visit their permaculture farm, for my family was from the same part of Latvia, and they knew my family name. When I first arrived, Oskars bounded into the room with a metal cup and shouted, Zimali, drink this! <laughs> it was spring water that he had just drawn from a spring-fed well in the woods, and it was a perfect five degrees Celsius. This is from our land. The water is priceless. A rich man with money in his pocket cannot buy this treasure, he beamed. This part of Latvia was one of the last areas to be invaded by the Crusaders, bringing them into the fold of Christendom. But there wasn't much follow-up by missionaries after the first round of baptisms, and the people kept their pagan traditions, which meant that they kept their connection to the land. Foraging for food is still a regular practice. The wheel of the year still informs daily life with rituals and traditions that reinforce the relationship between humans and the land that nourishes them. 
When a couple marries, they also covenant with the land. Every farm has a name. My friend's farm is Ganyanyi, which means little goat. When a woman marries, she trades the circlet of the maiden for the kerchief of a householder. The man becomes the steward of the land. Oscars knows every tree and bush, every spring and stream on their five hectare farm and carefully harvests and plants trees so as to act in harmony with the ecosystem. Ilsa and Oscars cares for the land and the land care for them, cares for them. They had a special name for this relationship that does not have an English translation, Saimnieki. It is often translated as landlord or steward, but it's really what we would call being in covenant. I think about this as I learn about the connection to the land among indigenous people. There is a sense of belonging, of relationship, of covenant that has been lost among most Europeans and that this should be everyone's experience of being human. Not having this connection or having lost it, I think creates solastalgia. A related concept is borderland. It's when our human consciousness merges with the landscape in an I-thou relationship, where the connection is more than the sum of the parts. You might experience this during a peak or religious experience when you feel that ineffable sense of connection to the universe. Eating that apple in Oil Creek was one of those experiences for me. But it is also a way of being in the world when we realize that we are part and partial of, parcel of nature and not separate from it. I've had moments of borderland experience but it wasn't until more recently that I started learning to inhabit the borderland. When I took a two-week permaculture course up in Michigan, it shifted my awareness so that I'm more likely to live in a borderland state where consciousness meets landscape in this deep, deep sense of mutuality and covenant. I have tried to become the Sianieka on the land that I live on. When I see a tree encased in concrete, I feel its isolation. Another borderland example is thinking about where I live as the Cuyahoga watershed rather than in Kent or in Portage County. Try introducing yourself using your watershed instead of your mailing address. <laughs> where does the water run from the land where you live? Breakneck Creek, Fish Creek, Tinker's Creek? This new awareness sometimes manifests into a sense of guilt and sinfulness. I know that so many of my actions are harmful to the planet. Every time I get into my gas car, take a plane, buy a bottle of water, or eat fast food, I know I'm causing harm. You use have inherited a religious tradition that includes a lot of Calvinist judgment that's still in our DNA. And I hear a lot of stories about congregations who are having conflicts over what behavior, behaviors are greener than thou. <laughs> but nature does not judge like an old Puritan. Nature ebbs and flows. Nature co-creates. Nature kills and is killed. Harms happen. Life depends on it. 
We have inherited ethics that no longer serve us. I think there was another lesson from the Garden of Eden that reminds us that we once lived in harmony with nature. We used to have a sense of connection before nature became other. I'm rereading one of my favorite books, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Kimmerer is a distinguished teaching professor at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, and she's also the director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. She has shared the benefits of traditional ecological knowledge to the scientific community in a way that respects and protects indigenous knowledge. Kimmerer often engages her students with the question, many of us love the natural world. What would it mean if you knew that the world loved you back? After the usual pushback that such a question is unscientific, Kimmerer then responds, okay then, hypothetically speaking, what would change if the earth loved you back? The answer is, everything would change. Tragically, Western culture has convinced us that we are not nature, that nature is other, that nature is something to control and use up, and there are certain rules about who gets to do the controlling. But it goes further than this. Historically, there have been a small group who have used violence against nature and against other humans in order to turn them away from our birthright place in the natural order. We call this civilization. In this country, we have woven the violence, this violence, into the American dream. People in our marginalized communities know that this dream is a myth because it's never been true for them. This way of being in the world has given us structures of oppression that are endangering our very existence. Extraction violates, exploitation violates, colonization, dehumanization, patriarchy, hierarchy, they're all violations of our humanity. The conversation among Unitarian Universalists about dismantling white supremacy culture is not a separate conversation. The term white supremacy culture is how people of color and indigenous people experience this. It's the violence that's inherent in our, inherent in our culture. The people who first lived on this land experienced it. And dismantling white supremacy is a way toward dismantling all of the oppressions that have gotten us into the environmental mess that we're in. I believe that you use our uniquely positioned to help show other white people what it looks like to decenter white voices and listen to the voices that offer a return to the garden. We can transform back into a way of being where humanity is participating in the natural and mutual community of life. All of the struggles with cultural misappropriation, gendered language, and even mission accountability and covenant are pulling us into conversations that are getting to the heart of the matter. How we are living is not sustainable, and we need to rethink everything. We are going to have to jettison our hyper-individualism and rediscover the strengths, strengthening bonds of community. We are going to have to abandon the gospel of endless growth and focus on resilience. 
And we're going to have to humble ourselves to the fact that many of the parts of our UU identity and history have actually contributed to the problem. What stands most present for me is that Unitarians were very prominent in the movement to civilize Indian children in boarding schools by trying to extinguish their indigenous culture and identity. I must admit that despair is coming upon me as often as hope is these days. But my hope is coming from the resilience of our indigenous siblings and siblings of color. I am thankful that our ancestors' efforts to extinguish indigenous culture wasn't as successful as they hoped, and indigenous voices can still be heard. These voices are helping me to decenter the failed narrative in my own consciousness and are helping me to live into the borderland. And you know what? This new story, this new hope is exhilarating. We can co-create a new and much better way forward by embracing our past, especially the past of the land that we inhabit. The word and symbol Sankofa is used by the Akan people of Ghana to symbolize taking from the past what is good and bringing it into the present in order to benefit all. As many of you know, I'm becoming a local activist, creating connections within our community as part of my work with the Kent Environmental Council and the new Crooked River Environmental Network. My hope is to explore local resilience and mutuality using permaculture and indigenous frameworks. The culture will not change from the top. It needs the many small changes of people like you and I to influence the top. I believe that our UU faith communities can and should be places where we can help one another co-create better ways of living. We can nurture democracy locally, promoting social and ecological accountability rather than hyper-individualism. We can start or change the narrative. We can help build the bridge between the beauty of the earth and the potential of humanity. May it be so. Let us spend a few moments so that you can listen to the words forming in your own heart. We belong to the earth. We all belong to the earth. It's not that she belongs to us. It's we belong to her. We all belong strand in the web are we a strand in the web I believe to own it we cannot dare to dream it's a web that we didn't weave it's a web that we didn't weave cause we belong to the earth we all It's not that she belongs to us, it's we belong to her. We all belong to her. We belong to the earth. We all belong to the earth. It's not that 
we belong to her. We all belong to her. As we leave these sheltering walls, may you walk in beauty and in love, knowing that the earth loves you back. Amen. <laughs>